From the book of Philippians, there is a little phrase that is this man's philosophy of life. You've quoted it often and can quote it. And so do it with me. For me to live is Christ. Say that again. For me to live is Christ. And that's his philosophy. John Henry Jowett says there are three cardinal words in that phrase. Me live Christ. And the center term, the middle term, is defined in union with the other two. You put two cards in proper relationship and turn on the electricity. And what you get, the result, is a brilliant light. So the apostle is saying, I'm going to join me to Christ and find life in its fullest. Plutarch, the philosopher, said that philosophy is the art of living. So that the Apostle Paul was saying, this is the art of life. To join my life to Jesus Christ and find the brilliance of life in its fullest expression. I want to talk to you this morning about a philosophy of life. And I believe that the book of Philippians is an expansion of that philosophy so that the rest of this book is the expansion of the philosophy and the definition of it. It's the explanation of it. And so the Apostle Paul tells us in this Philippian letter, the art of living involves these things. Number one, do what you believe to be God's plan for you. The emphasis is on the you. Uh, you do it singularly and individually. The emphasis is on the you. I think there's t- there are too many people who, who live their lives too dependent upon others, like clinging vines. They draw most, if not all, of their energy from someone else. It's a great day when a person discovers that he is responsible for his life. And that she is accountable to God for her life. And that they and they alone are responsible for their happiness. It is for me to live Christ. And the emphasis may not just be on the you. The emphasis may be upon the plan. Well, you see, God has, you know this, God has a plan for every life. A blueprint with just your name on it. You're the design of the designer, the dream of the dreamer, the plan of the planner. You already know that. And that's a great day when you discover that. But it is even a more glorious day when you come to the place where God's plan for your life becomes the overruling obsession of your life. When God's plan and dream for you becomes the one magnificent motivation for which you live, For me to live is Christ. Rudyard Kipling has a great piece called The Explorer. It's about a man in search of a dream. And he's looking for this perfect spot on earth. This is how it goes. This is the age of cultivation. So they said that I believe them. So I worked my fields, planted my crops, stretched my fences and built my barns in the little barter station where tucked away beneath the foothills where the trails run out and stop. 
till a voice as bad as conscience rang on interminable changes. One everlasting whisper, day and night, repeated so. Something lost, go and find it. Go and look beyond the ranges. Something lost beyond the ranges. Something lost waiting for you. Anyone could have found it. But his whisper came to me. Now what Rudyard Kibling calls the whisper of God, the Apostle Paul calls the high calling of God, and what Kipling called the edge of cultivation, God called, Paul called, the great prize that he would strive to attain. That became the magnificent obsession of his life. You may not be familiar with the name Robert Bullard, Robert Bullard found the wreckage of the Titanic. After searching for years, he found the wreckage of the Titanic 350 miles off the coast of Newfoundland. It was about two miles down in the icy waters, and he dropped a camera with a light on it and discovered the wreckage of the Titanic. To read his impression of the first sighting of the Titanic is an inspiring thing. It goes like this. My first view of the wreckage of the Titanic lasted for only a couple of minutes, but the stark sight of that black hole towering above the ocean floor will remain forever ingrained in my memory. To discover the Titanic was the fulfillment of a lifelong dream. And for the last 13 years of my life, it has totally dominated me. A man in search of a dream. And to read that is to be thrilled. But to turn to the book of Philippians and find this statement, I've left everything and counted it lost. And I have one motivating drive, and that drive is to grasp that for which God has grasped me, is to make my skin crawl. To do that is to be guaranteed that you'll not waste your life. David Roper has a ministry to the University of Stanford campus. He goes out there and leads Bible studies. And one night he was out there, got there early, and he was standing in this open courtyard just kind of waiting for the guys to arrive. And he noticed for the first time something over in the underbrush, in the, in the, in the shrubs covered with, with, with uh, brush and plants and, and, and growth. And curiously, he went over there and he parted some of the, 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 the shrubs and he dug out some of the, under, the, the growth there and he found a bird bath, an ornate bird bath. Obviously, somebody had spent a lot of time and energy making this bird bath. And David Roper prayed, Lord, save my life, wasted effort. Keep me from making bird baths that are buried. And so the Apostle Paul said, for me, I'm going after the prize of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that keeps us from a wasted life. Number two, the art of living is this, that a good laugh is any time you can. The book of Philippians is a book of joy. It rings with laughter. It sings with songs of joy. It absolutely convinces me that a joyous life is not determined by circumstances or geography 
our education, our employment. This man laughed his way through life, even in prison. The book of Proverbs says that a joyous heart is like a medicine, but a broken spirit crushes the bones. Did you know that laughter is really medicinal in its effect? I mean, it, it exercises your lungs. It, it stimulates your circulation. It, it, it releases tension. It, uh, it, it takes your mind off your troubles and massages your emotions, does laughter. It releases a kind of temporary anesthetic that blocks pain while it diverts you from your, uh, your problems and your troubles. Endorphins, the natural painkiller of, of, of your body is released by laughter. It's, it's the best exercise you can have. It's, it's, it really does heal, does laughter. Norman Cousins found that out. He's the guy that wrote the book, Anatomy of Illness, of an Illness as Perceived by a Patient. Norman Cousins was diagnosed as having an incurable illness. He was dying a, a horrible death. It, it seems like that the uh, content of the cells that hold the cells together was deteriorating. He, he said, I was literally becoming unstuck. And so he decided that he would try his own way to get well. He, he, he chose a three-pronged um, way of getting well. One, he decided he'd just take all the vitamins he could take. Uh, number two, he started eating just the right kinds of food, his vegetables and fruits and that kind of thing. And the third thing he did, are you ready for this? He started practicing what he called laughter therapy. He got all these films of videos of old uh, comedians like the Marx Brothers and Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges, and he started laughing. And he found out that for 10 minutes of laughter, he could go two hours pain-free, and he got well. Now, I'm not suggesting this morning that you need to quit going to the doctor and, and just start laughing your way to feel better. But the valid point I want to make is this, that if Laurel and Hardy and the Three Stooges could make that big a difference, just think of what the joy of Christ can make. He laughed his way through life. Fred Allen, the comedian, said, It's wrong for us to suppress laughter, for when you do, it goes down and spreads your hips. And, <laughs> and that might be the explanation of why... Well, we won't go into that, but in a, in a, in a, in a more sophisticated way, G.K. Chesterton said, I believe in laughter, for laughter has in it something in common with the words of faith and inspiration. It unfreezes pride, it unwinds secrecy, and it saves one from thinking only of himself in the presence of something greater than himself. A laugh, a good laugh, is any time you can. Number three, the best things in life are not things. Now, if you, if the Apostle Paul, if Saul had been graded with a key that is designed by the world, he would have scored a hundred. This guy was phenomenal. He was Gamaliel's pride and joy. He was the shining star of Judaism. 
He was on the rise, was, the apostle, was, was Saul of Tarsus. Now listen to me. What he accomplished, did Saul of Tarsus accomplish, is comparable to winning the Nobel and Pulitzer Prizes. The Medal of Honor, the most valuable player, the Heisman Trophy, and the gold medal. This man had it all. And if you were were going to find somebody to model, you would head straight for Tarsus. But you would have to hurry to stay up with him. If Time Magazine had existed in his day, he would have been on the cover more times than Richard Nixon. And if there had been a newspaper, the headlines of that newspaper would have been daily something that Saul accomplished and did. He was magnificent. And his daytimer was filled with power appointments. And the last day of his daytimer, before the most significant day in his life, his daytimer would have read, Last Stop, Damascus. And on the way to Damascus, Saul of Tarsus ran head-on into Jesus Christ and found Him in a blazing light. And when he did that, listen to me, kids, he discovered how completely and utterly misguided he was. And he discovered how utterly bankrupt he was. Now, I want you to listen to what he says. I've got to read it from the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I counted these things garbage. Now, if we could translate Saul of Tarsus into modern yuppiedom, this would be how it would be. He had a great position. He had a significant title. He had a marvelous salary with enviable perks. He had a magnificent automobile and a place to park it with his name on it. He had, a, he had a beautiful home to go home to in the evening. He had more than a summer home. He, he might have had a winter home. And he discovered that these things were rubbish. Muhammad Ali may have been the greatest athlete, at least one of the greatest athletes who has ever lived. He floated like a butterfly. He stung like a bee. This man was known by kings and presidents, was Muhammad Ali. 
on the cover of Sports Illustrated more than any other athlete. Where is now? Gary Smith went to find him, this man that had an entourage like a comet that circled the earth following after Muhammad Ali. He went to his home outside of his house. He has an outbuilding, kind of like a barn. Inside this outbuilding, he took Gary Smith inside. Inside of it are all these life-size portraits of Muhammad Ali, chiseled body, browned and gorgeous. With his fist raised in the sky in triumph, floating like a butterfly, sparring and, 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 and jabbing, the thriller of Manila. And as they looked at these portraits, they saw white streaks on them. Could it be? And they looked up, and pigeons had gotten into the outbuilding. And these portraits were streaked with pigeon droppings. And in an act of protection of his pictures, Muhammad Ali took each one of them and turned them face against the wall, perhaps as an act of closure. And then he muttered something as he headed for the door that Gary Smith didn't understand. And so we asked him to repeat it. And Muhammad Ali repeated this. I had the world once, and it ain't nothing. The best things in life are not things. Number four, don't hold grudges. Don't hold grudges. Now, if there is ever a man who had the right to hold grudges, it was this man. People are jealous of him. As a matter of fact, he said, when they put me in prison, my own colleagues were gleeful. <laughs> they loved it. And because I was in prison, some became preachers. He, he describes it. Listen to it. In the first chapter, listen to this. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What difference does it make, he said, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I'll keep on rejoicing. I mean, not a bitter bone in his body. Do you still remember the people who have hurt you? And you blame them for those for that pain that's never been reconciled? If you do, do you realize how much energy it takes to nurse old wounds? And do you know how much joy robbing a bitter spirit can cause? And if your resentment goes deep enough, you stop living. Needless to say, you have stopped laughing. I have only four words for you, if that's the case. It's not worth it. 
And somehow we need to get past the issue of those old hurts. Some of us haven't gotten over Tom Landry's firing. Huh. I'm, I'm still having a problem with that. Especially the way he was fired. But you know, the amazing thing about it is that that magnanimous man did not hold grudges. Now, you go to the big city media, and you got these reporters in the big city, in the jungle of the big city media, and they're looking for just one word of bitterness or resentment that, that he said, and they're going to plaster it on the front page sport of the, of the sport page for days. And there wasn't one, word, wasn't one word that he said of resentment. You think if there was one, that they wouldn't have found it or heard it? If they hadn't heard it, they'd have made it up? But they didn't. Because they knew the man held no bitterness. In fact, he said, these things are going to happen. You just have to learn to respond to them. Victor Frankl was one of those men in Auschwitz. He survived Hitler, and he wrote this statement. Listen to it. We may not have the choice of the time or the type of our suffering, but one thing they'll not be able to take from us, and that is our ability to choose how we respond to it. And the Apostle Paul said, Forgetting those things which are behind. And he was talking about forgetting fully, forgetting fully. And he's using an athletic term. Literally, he's saying, stop looking over your shoulders. No athlete can run the race looking back. For no athlete in Paul's day would have ever looked back. Some of you live your life looking over your shoulders. One last word, please. In the art of living, one final thing. Be prepared for the unexpected. There's not a single person here this morning who would dare say, my life is exactly like I thought it would be. There's so many unexpected things that come. There's so many surprises there's not a single one of us this morning who would stand to say, it all happened to the point where I am now. It's all happened exactly like I thought it would. It just doesn't work out that way. There are so many things that happen that we don't anticipate. Now, how do you get ready for the unexpected? Well, you need to learn to be flexible and adjustable. You need to be willing to change you need to understand that these things are going to come that you, aren't, you, you don't expect, and you've got to be able to roll. Listen, kids, you've got to be able to roll with the punches and adjust and change. And I think that you have to make some decisions here in this room. Sometime, at least, you have to make some choices and decisions that are unalterable that you're going to stick to for the rest of your life. You have to make them ahead of time. 
I heard a man speaking to a group of young people. He gave the best illustration I've ever heard. He said, suppose this. He said, suppose that you were uh, hanging out one night down at the, at the hangout, and some guys pulled up in a car. They were you know, buddies, friends, and they said, hey, get in the car. Let's make a drag. And so it is called a dragon. Get in the car, and let's make a drag. And so, so you get in the car with them. And they headed out, and everybody's having a good time. All of a sudden, they pull into an all-night automobile parts store, and they go in. And for the first time, you realize they have gone into that store to rob it. They're going to send, knowing, knowing that there'd just be one night manager, they're going to send him to the back to get a part that's you know, obscure. And, and while he's at the back, they're going to grab everything in sight, and they're going to run. And for the first time, you're confronted with what you're there for. Now he said, what are you going to do? Are you just going to stand there and let them run and, and be ostracized and counted a nerd, you know, and a coward? Are you going to do that? Are you going to run and stand the chance of, of being caught and being a part of their crime, of which you, you weren't really a part? Are you going to call the police? He said, what are you going to do? Then he makes a valid point. He said you have to make that decision before you ever get to it. I think you have to make a decision to follow Christ, a commitment that's not contingent. By that I mean I'm committing my life to Jesus Christ. And the dream of my life is to, is to win the prize. And that is not contingent. It's not going to be based on anything else. It's my commitment, unconditional commitment. I, make a, I have a faith that's unconditional. It doesn't matter if there, come, there will come a time in my life where it seems like to believe is foolish. I'm still going to believe regardless of what comes. My life belongs to Him. One ship drives east. The other drives west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sun and not the gale that determines which way they go. You set your sail once and for all to God, to the prize, regardless of what happens. Two roads diverged into a yellow wood. Sorry, that I could not travel both and be one traveler, I stood. And looked long down the road as far as I could till it bent in the undergrowth. And I took the other road. Take a long look as far as you can down the road to where it bends in the undergrowth. And I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ to choose Him. Let's pray. Our Father, what a life is our example, the Apostle Paul. A life lived in its fullest, 
a light of brilliance. We pray that for each person in this room today, young and old, for the courage to choose and the will to follow the choice unconditionally to the end. For I pray in the name of your dear Son for his sake. Look here, please. I want to invite you this morning to get up out of your seat. If you've never claimed Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior and come to commit your life to Him, to follow Him, to live for Him, to serve Him, to place your faith on Christ, unconditional trust upon Him. In the early service, some came to join our fellowship. Maybe you would want to do that. The road you choose is that road. Or maybe you want to come this morning as a young person to commit your life to following Jesus Christ to the will and way of God for you, young or old. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.